This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life. From smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. The American temptation is not the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, when Satan wanted him to turn the stones into bread. For we have bread and to spare, whereas Christ was hungry. Every episode we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today, we're hearing a sermon preached by E.Y. Mullins. It was preached as a response to a riot that occurred in Kentucky in the late 1800s. Uh, Joel, let's start from the top and outset, just in case you are new to the podcast, Revive Thoughts. We have a lot of people who find us all the time. We want to welcome you. This episode might stand out to you because of its name. We want you to know that this sermon, which is honestly more of a spiritual speech than sermon. I mean, it's preached in a church, but compared to some of our sermons, it's not... Uh, I I think it falls a little bit more in the lines of a spiritual speech, but it is a response to some riots, but they weren't riots that happened in recent times. This isn't uh, responding to any kind of news today. This riot happened over 120 years ago in Kentucky. Uh, So at at the same time, it'd be impossible not to hear the word spoken and think about things that maybe are true, that maybe are still true even 120 years later. Yeah, so E.Y. Mullins, that E.Y. in his name stands for Edgar Young. Edgar Young Mullins. He was born in 1860. He was raised in Texas after the Civil War, which is kind of an, an odd perspective to put in that mindset of growing up during the reconstruction of America when the war happened as you know as you were being born yeah. essentially i don't think we've had anybody who was kind of growing up in reconstruction we've had a few people in the civil war right. on both sides of it we've had a few people before or after i think it was the first person who's like whose earliest memories would probably be the civil war ending and the troops right. coming home yeah yeah it's kind of unique it's something to think about we we don't know a whole lot about his childhood what we do know are basically a list of near-death experiences <laughs> that he seems like, because that's what gets written down. Um, and there's very little, essentially no details around this, but we see th- there was an instance where he almost drowned. There was an instance where he almost got ran over by a train in a railroad accident. There is an instance where he almost got killed in a hunting mis- mishap. And again, I'd love to more, know I want to know some of these details. Tell me the story of, of what went happened on that hunting trip. But, yeah. but we don't know. We just, I mean, th- that is essentially his childhood summed up is he almost died several times. <laughs> but once he gets to college and graduates, then we have more sources on who he was as a person and what he did. After he graduated, he began working at a telegram office, and it wasn't long before he was running the place. And like Schofield and Samuel P. Jones, He wanted to start studying law. He wanted to be a lawyer. But while he was at a revival by a man named Major William Evander Penn, he was listening to the sermon, and it it shook him. It got a hold of him. Old school revival sermon. You know, imagine him sitting there. He's probably, he's in his late teens or his early 20s, and Mullins decides that he wanted to be a missionary to Brazil. 
No, I put Major William Evander Penn into this because I saw his name and I, I just had to click, you know, the link and learn more about him. He kind of needs his own episode. Uh, maybe that'll come up at some point. He preached in Europe and he liked castles and he liked them so much he decided to build one and it still stands to this day in Eureka Springs. And apparently HGTV did an episode on his castle. He sounds like a really interesting kind of strange guy. You know. So I kind of want to find out more about I've him. I've actually seen that episode. I'm not you even see? gonna lie. <laughs> Really? Was it a cool castle? It was pretty neat. All right. It was so pretty neat. there you go. It was the guy who saved this guy's castle that you saw one time. Be fun to do it on location in Eureka Springs. There we that's, go. It's a little trip. bit of a ways there. <laughs> All right. E.Y. Mullins wants to become a missionary to Brazil. And he marries a woman named Isla May because she too had the same goal. You know, we're going to be, oh, you want to go to Brazil too? Let's go together. Missionaries to Brazil. He now he goes to seminary at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He graduates. He's, you know, doing great. Very high in his class. Um, he would have been taught at the time by uh, John Bratis and John Dagg. If you haven't listened to those episodes, go check them out. They're really good. I say that all the time, but I'm always encouraging you guys to check out all of our work here. Now, Mullins went to the Foreign Missionary Board, and he, that was of the Baptists, and he said, hey, can you send me and my wife? We're ready to go to Brazil. But sadly, the board was, we're out of money right now. We can't send you to Brazil. We're, we're not, that's just not, in the, that's not in the cards. And so he, he kind of gets that news. It hits him pretty hard. And not very long after that, doctors tell him, hey, you have this kind of illness. We don't think you should ever go to Brazil. In fact, we're going to recommend maybe you kind of go as far away from Brazil as you can get because that it, it would we think you're Ill, with your illness, it, w- it would kill you to just try to go. Yeah, and this is a rough patch in his life, uh, you know, because ever since his conversion, his dream, his calling, he thought, was to go preach the gospel in the mission field. And on top of that heartbreaking news, um, he would go through more trials with him and his wife. They would have two sons, and both of them would pass away as children at an early age. So now he and his wife would live the rest of their life without children. They never had more children. The two that they had passed away. So Mullins goes and he serves during this time as a pastor in Baltimore. And he is well-liked. He also gets to preach and rotate through several uh, different African-American churches throughout the city of Baltimore. And he develops a, a huge heart for the poor and for those who are in tough situations in American cities. At this point, he gets to invited to serve as the secretary of the Foreign Mission Board. So you don't get to go to foreign missions, but could you help us run the board? That, I guess that's kind of um, a nice step in the right direction. And while he's kind of doing that and preaching in Baltimore, there's this controversy that brews up in the Southern Baptist. I am not going to lie. I looked at this for a little while, and I don't fully understand. Not that I don't understand the controversy we're about to describe. We've had a few controversies that we've had to talk about in the show this one is more like I'm not sure quite why this one blew up as bad as it did uh, for these guys. But basically, the third president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary said that baptism by immersion, being fully baptized as an adult into water, uh, did not show up in England until 1641. People took that as an attack by that kind of baptism and said, no, we, we believe that the church has been secretly, you know, there have been pockets of the church doing this since the beginning, since the days of the apostles. And that you're saying this makes it sound like this hasn't been going on ever. Some wanted, um, and this just made people mad. They thought, okay, you're secretly trying to bring infant baptism or sprinkling or something like that into the Southern Baptist, and we're not okay with that. This, he, I guess he didn't defend himself well because he got a couple chance to write papers back and forth. Whatever happens, they get rid of him. And so people go, we want somebody a little bit more moderate, someone who we don't think is going to promote child baptism. 
it's 120 years ago. I'm not 100% sure why this was get rid of the president level bad stuff. Because, I, I mean, I kind of think it's true that that wasn't that kind of baptism wasn't brought to England until 1641. So I'm not sure why stating that fact was such a big deal. Whatever happens, though, UI Mullins is shocked to find out that you, you they, we want you to be the fourth president of the seminary, which I feel like is kind of a dangerous job when you find out how the last guy got thrown out. Um, I'd be a little nervous to take that job. But he goes for it. Him and his wife are encouraged by other pastors in the area. His wife really says, "We think, yeah, I think you can do this. And so he becomes the fourth president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is basically like the, the, at that time the big seminary for Southern Baptists. And uh, he would be its president for the next 30 or almost 30 years. Yeah, and he develops this reputation for unifying people, for, for kind of calming strife amongst believers, which I, I think is a real spiritual gift like there there is so much of the bible so much of the new testament is all about uh promoting and commanding unity in the church and condemning those that cause disunity in the church and strife within the church and so to see him as he weaves in and the the patience that god gives him to deal with controversies in the church is kind of neat to see in history there's this story that his wife tells of him at his his home church and his home church was going through a split over the idea of using a piano instead of an organ and people were up in arms he got up in the middle of a meeting and he told a story how growing up his family had two cows and one was brown and the other was spotted and he loved both the cows he thought they both made great milk but which one was better they're different but they were both good and he didn't want to get rid of either of the cows or have to choose between the two cows maybe that story doesn't work on you today <laughs> but at the time yeah it totally it totally worked like and it's just that conversation with people it's just getting down on their level and and listening to people he had a real talent for it and while he served at the president of the seminary he was also elected president of the southern baptist convention and he would also help stop another split that was happening at a southern baptist debate issue over evolution that was going on at the time Do you think about how your iPhone affects your daily life as a Christian? I'm Adam. And I'm Chris. And this episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast, where we argue about the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life, from DNA tests to TikTok videos. Give us a listen, and this fall, check out our new online seminary course. It's called Theology of Technology, Church and Culture in the Age of Zoom. Find out more at deviceandvirtue.com. He wrote many books, including this one that would become the most famous called The Axioms of Religions. So that would be his biggest, you know, big seller. And as he got older, he began to put some of that middle, and the kind of in the middle side of him away. His last book, Christianity at a Crossroads, um, came out just before his death, and he really kind of went after the modernist side, kind of putting him squarely into the more of the fundamentalist camp. When he died in 1928, he uh, died of a stroke, and his wife would write one of the probably longest lasting memoirs on him. I don't know if nobody thought they could improve it or what, but that would be kind of like, even today I was reading, you know, bits from that book to learn about him. So that was the kind of the book you go to is the one written by his wife. 
One quote said, um, as he, after he died, one person was basically said, as, that was the most famous Southern Baptist in all the world that had just died. Um, he had just been elected to what was called the World Baptist Alliance. It was kind of this as president in honor of his support throughout missions throughout the years. And this was just this group of different Baptists trying to come together so they could do missions together a little bit easier. Um, so even though he never got to go to Brazil, that dream of sending missionaries and being a part of that, he brought that into the Southern Baptists and kept it going and was able for him to just be a part of his legacy. This sermon is him uh, responding to a crisis in Kentucky uh, very early on in his career. And in some ways, you can kind of see him taking that moderate road. He doesn't actually talk about why this riot happened. He doesn't go into the details of all the of what what is the story of the day. He's not really reading from the headlines. He's more upset that there's even a riot in the first place. He's saying, look, we are failing if we're letting this happen in the first place. Uh, this speech comes from a man who had to oversee some very contentious moments, both as a seminary president, as convention president, and as a man who knew personal tragedy well, this would have been during that time when his children had died and when his dream to go to Brazil had just been crushed. Yet, despite that, he understood that Christians are supposed to respond a certain way to events. Acts 19.40 for we are in danger to be called into questioning for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give account of this concourse. The love of one city, state, or country implies hatred of the evils which do them harm. Indignation against the evil corresponds exactly with the intensity of the love. As you cannot have an up without implying a down, a yes without a no, so you cannot have love without hate of the opposite of the object love. True patriotism demands condemnation of that which injures cities, states, and countries. For these are things that harm what we love, our homes. Christian duty compels outspokenness in pulpit, press, and by the individuals themselves. I wish to consider the recent mob merely as an incident in connection with the general prevalence of mob rule all over the country. In Nevada, there has been almost a state of civil war. In Atlanta, a year ago, a terrible uprising occurred and minorities suffered. In Indiana, the same thing has taken place in one form or another repeatedly. The mob is becoming chronic in American life. What is a mob? It is a headless human millipede. It is a beast with a thousand legs, having the ferocity and blindness and cruelty and greed and passion of the beast without the conscience and the reason of the man. There are several kinds of mobs. There is the hoodlum mob, where the lawless elements simply assert their lawlessness. And there is the vindictive striker mob, where labor struggling for its rights forgets itself and destroys life or property. And there is the respectable citizen mob, where the so-called best elements of the community take the law in their own hands and set aside courts and juries. The last group is the worst of all forms of the mob. It marks a new stage in the development of the mob, and this is the kind of mob we recently witnessed. Let us consider the mob violence as a symptom. One, of both a lack of confidence and of overconfidence in American institutions. From lack of confidence, men say, we have been wronged. The courts cannot be trusted to right our wrong. Or, a crime has been committed. Courts cannot be trusted, we will right our own wrong. It is a lack of confidence found here. 
but the members of these mobs would deny probably that they were lacking in confidence in American institutions. Really, they have an overweening confidence in those institutions. They think that our political fabric can endure any kind of strain and become reckless in their violence. This is the peculiar temptation of Americans, overconfidence in their institutions. The American temptation is not the temptation of Christ in the wilderness when Satan wanted him to turn the stones into bread. For we have bread and to spare, whereas Christ was hungry. Nor is it the temptation of the mountaintop, when Satan offered him the kingdoms of the world, for we are filled with glory and power. Our temptation is rather that of the pinnacle of the temple, when Satan urged Christ to cast himself down, trusting the promise that God would give his angels charge and bear him up in their hands, lest he dash his foot against the stone. But we have no mortgage on providence. The biblical promise is to those who do justly and love mercy and walk humbly before their God, not to those who love injustice and do violence and forget God. The biblical teaching is that a degenerate government is doomed. When we fall from our high state, God's providence smites. The mob spirit may be our chief peril today. 2. In the second place, the mob is a symptom of the collapse of the moral and civic ideal in the interest of the commercial. I refer now especially to our recent mob. Here the justification was that someone committed a crime, but it was a mob destroying property because their profits were threatened. It was an attempt to adjust commercial relations through violence. Essentially, this mob spirit means money profits against law and order. It means the business against constitutional liberty. It means an attempt to take the silver lining from the cloud of our destiny in order to put a silver lining in our pockets. It means the golden dollar against the golden rule. I do not sit in judgment on the merits of the controversy on the merits of the specific case in any uprising of the mob. I point out merely the significance of there being a mob at all. If we are so money mad that our civic fabric is to be sacrificed to the passion for gain by violence, then it is the beginning of the end with us. Unless restraints can be imposed and our people brought back to their senses, things will end. 3. The mob is a symptom of a reversion to an earlier state of human society. Man has passed from tribal life through the military period to the pastoral when he kept his flocks, and then to the agricultural when he tilled the soil as his chief occupation, and then he passed into the industrial and democratic era. The mob is a lapse to the military foundation of society. The mob is a declaration of war. Are we so ready to repudiate the democratic ideals? The glory of the democratic ideals has been first its love of liberty, second its respect for the right of others, Third, its respect for the dignity of courts and legislatures and its belief in the competency of man in all the spheres of human activity. De Tocqueville says this principle of the competency of man in all spheres is the fundamental American principle. Americans believe in the competency of the individual in the home, in the church, in the state, and everywhere to regulate his own affairs. The citizen mob is the proclamation to the world of the loss of faith in this doctrine of the competency of man to regulate his own affairs. The citizen mob becomes a declaration for socialism. The socialist who wishes to confiscate all the instruments of production to the public use will clap his hands with delight. The recent mob has given its own socialistic sermon seen through its actions. It tells people that the competitive economic system is a failure. 
there is no way to regulate the businesses or criminals by the instruments of government. That peaceful adjustment of differences is no longer possible. Of course, the members of the recent citizen mob would never say all this, but it is implicit in how they acted. In conclusion, a few words as to our duty regarding this. I sincerely trust that the government will take vigorous hold of those who are in the mob. We believe it will do so, whatever may be the steps necessary. There are several duties, however, which are incumbent upon every citizen. One of them is outspokenness against mob violence. The tendency is to condone and excuse such violence on the plea that the grievance is great. No grievance is ever great enough to justify the overthrow of law and order, for law and order is the most precious jewel in our civilization. It is our civilization. And another duty is courage. Courage in the courts, courage on the part of witnesses, courage on the part of juries, and especially courage in the citizenship at large to support the administrators of the law. Bad courts, bad juries, bad officers, and bad politics, after all, are just thermometers which tell the state of things among the people. They are effects. The causes lie somewhere else. A third remark that needs to be made as to our duty is that we are called upon to apply our Christianity. Theories of righteousness are good. Theories of salvation are good. Doctrines are necessary. The teachings of the Bible are absolutely indispensable. But so long as they remain theories held only in our minds, so long as they remain mere doctrines, they amount to little. There is a tremendous call to the pulpit and to the press, to the teacher and the parent, and to every man and woman who is in a position to shape and mold public sentiment, to engage in a campaign of practical effort to apply the principles of righteousness to civic life. The real cure for mob violence is the slow but sure method of leavening the minds of the people with higher ideals of life and duty. In the meantime, the direct and correct method is the enforcement of the law at every point. To this influence, every citizen should lend his aid and his support. Acts 19, uh, 23. About that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there a danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and all the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion. They rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions, from Macedonia. In this story of Ephesus, we see a riot. We see a a group of people pretty upset and grabbing and deciding to do things for themselves. And the reason they were upset was because their money, their trade, their their way of lives had been disrupted. And E.Y. Mullen says, look, the riots we see, there's violence here and there's greed here and there are things happening that no Christians should support this kind of stuff. And regardless of the facts of the cases on the ground, we have to stand away and be a people of peace, a people who try to bring love and peace to situations and calm 
down the situation, you know, bring the water temperature down a little bit so that we don't get to a boiling point. That's what Christians and men of God are called to do. And I think that that is a definitely the right course. And, and again, we mentioned it in E.Y. Mullins' life at the top of the show. That was what he did throughout his life as he saw things were getting upset, saw people were angry and said, okay, we need to be people of peace. Maybe not. And that doesn't mean people of compromise. That means people of peace, people who do not resort to violence as their means of bringing attention to something. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Justin Ray. Justin Ray is the founder of soundinworship.com. It's a website designed to point Christians to worship music from theological sound sources. He also is the host of the If Songs Could Preach podcast. Yeah, Justin Ray's done several for us. He is great, and I definitely think he, we, we really appreciate him. And appreciate, honestly, you check out his show, If Songs Could Preach. It is interesting. You learn a lot about uh, the history of different hymns and songs. If you have not yet listened to Martyrs and Missionaries, we want to encourage you to do so. Elise on the Revive Studios show here has her own show. Tells you the lives of different martyrs and missionaries, just like it says. Sometimes they're both. Sometimes they're missionaries who get martyred. And uh, walks you through their lives. Sometimes she gets... uh, The amount of research she does for this show is incredible. It it is, without a doubt, some of the most researched uh, information on martyrs and missionaries you will find. It is the only podcast going through historically the lives of different martyrs and missionaries. So we definitely encourage you to go check out this other show by Revised Studios. We think it is very good and we think you will enjoy it. It's only usually about 15 minutes long, so it's a little bit shorter than Revived Thoughts, so easier to fit into that commute. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revived Thoughts. This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life. From smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com.